The materials disclosed on this podcast are deemed to be sales desk literature and subject to our client communication policy and code of conduct, as well as IROC rules. The economy is is operating with far less supply. We don't really want to encourage people to go out and start interacting again. So that could be another reason that other central banks are saying, we want to get more clarity. We'll wait a little while until it's safe for people to go out. And then we'll really, exactly what you said, turbocharge the economy. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the final edition of Curve Your Enthusiasm for 2020. Uh, I'm Ian Pollock, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Royce Mendez. Royce, this is our 27th episode, and it's been quite a year. I hope that we have enough content for this to be a super good episode. What do you think? I definitely think we do. And I think we do because, you know, I think the one thing that's been proven time and time again in 2020 is just when you think you're in for a lull, you get kind of a surprise. And obviously this week, the big surprise was what should have really been uh, an inconsequential economic progress report the day after what seemed to be a pretty benign Bank of Canada meeting. And we got a lot of information. Um, Why don't you just briefly talk about what we heard and let's uh, let's get into it. All right. So uh, you're right. The Bank of Canada meeting was pretty benign. But what Beaudry said the following day was pretty interesting. He had a speech that went into detail clarifying any misconceptions about the Bank of Canada's quantitative easing program. He said, this is not printing money. We are not financing the government. That's interesting. But I think for markets, what was more consequential was when he went through the potential tools that they have at their disposal. He talked about adding more firepower to the quantitative easing program. He clarified that in the question and answer period by saying he meant that they could add further duration. He spoke again about cutting the overnight rate to a number that would still be positive, but lower than the current effective lower bound, which is 25 basis points. That's something that Governor Macklem recently opened the door to in sort of, I would say, maybe an off the cuff remark. It was super off the cuff, right? Like we had picked up on it. But usually when you don't see it in the prepared text, you think, well, maybe it was a slip of the tongue or maybe it wasn't so important. He was just kind of, you know, saying what's on his mind. But the fact that it was brought up again to me, this now is the party line. Would you agree with that? It was in a prepared speech. And I think what we should take from this is that the bank is looking very closely at whether or not it can do this. Why don't we talk about what the advantages are? But I want to go through maybe a little bit of a scenario analysis with you. Let's talk about what the bank's options are in terms of if the economy is sort of status quo with regards to the outlook, if there are downside risks that materialize and there are upside risks that materialize. So first, I'll throw it to you. What do you think uh, happens under status quo? Listen, I think when I read the Bank Canada statement last Wednesday, to me, the only thing that really stood out was this subtle language change when they were talking about QE. And I forget what the actual wording was, but they basically said something like it could be calibrated in such a way to achieve a stable inflation target. And I read that as being very symmetric, i.e., you know, if it looks like the trajectory of the economy is hotter than they expected, then they could reduce QE purchases, which is kind of our base case. It's your macro base case. It's my bond market base case. 
in the status quo environment, I think it gets back to kind of those first principles where we were told that they would feel a little bit uncomfortable owning more than half of the bond market. You kind of get to that point by the end of next year, which tells me that, you know, the real option for them is to start slowing down a little bit. Slowing down, but probably adding duration. Am, am I right about that in the status quo environment so that you don't change the overall mix of stimulus? For sure. I mean, the Canadian taper is effectively the same as U.S. Operation Twist almost, right? And it's just because you can reduce your notional, but you buy a little bit further at the curve. Now, again, the U.S. is very centered on the 30-year part of the curve, whereas Canada, it's really been fives and tens. So it doesn't completely kill that steepening dynamic that we've been talking about. It just changes the composition of where that steepener comes from. Okay, let me talk about another option for the status quo. It would be an outright taper with no lengthening in duration, but a cut to the overnight rate. And what this would do, it would bring down the short end of the curve, which actually could help weaken the currency. That might be something that they're interested in, given where we're seeing the Canadian dollar trading. What do you think about that one? So listen, I think this week has all been about the Canadian dollar. And the problem here is that, you know, the Canadian dollar in of itself is not signaling Canadian strength. It's more of a secular turn in the U.S. dollar. And that's a very hard thing for a central bank to combat, right? FX is a relative marketplace. And the interesting thing, though, when we take a step back and say, well, why now? Why are they talking about this now? Is it because maybe they're concerned that the optimism related to the vaccine rollout could dissipate or there's going to be some hiccups or challenges? Because honestly, Royce, when I look at dollar cat, yep, sure, fine. Uh, we all know what it's been doing. It's been rallying or the Canadian dollar has been appreciating. But when I look at Canada on the crosses, it's been weakening. When I look at Canada on a trade-weighted basis, it's really done very little all year long. So I guess it comes back to the point that maybe they don't really care all that much about the Canadian dollar uh, and how it's trading versus its global peers. It's more versus our biggest trading partner. I just don't know how much of an efficacy this has in actually weakening the dollar because the cautionary tale in all this, of course, is Australia. The RBA lowered rates by 10 basis points. The currency weakened for a second and then started to appreciate thereafter. And I think one of the reasons why the Australian dollar appreciated so much despite the cut and QE was they basically ruled out negative rates. And that's something that the Bank of Canada, while they haven't said they've ruled it out, they reiterated uh, last week in the Beaudry speech, it's not practical for the Canadian financial system. In that type of environment, I still get very nervous that you could have a cut in a taper, produce some type of weakness immediately, but the persistence is very fleeting. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'll actually add something to that. In the current environment, it's actually not as important to have a competitive Canadian dollar simply because we know that the path of the economy over the next year is going to be heavily dependent on the vaccine rollout and what it does for domestic consumption. So I would argue that that was the reason that Beaudry was sort of evasive when he was asked about the Canadian dollar. He knows that these would typically be levels inconsistent with generating strong rebounds in exports or associated business investment. But at the current moment, maybe that's not really a worry. Let's move on to the downside risks. And I'll throw a few options out at you. And maybe I'll actually give my order of operations first. And then maybe you can comment on it. So I would say if the downside risks were to materialize, I would argue that maybe lowering the overnight rate might be one of their first options at the moment. Adding duration to bond purchases would probably be the next option. Increasing the strength of forward guidance would be up there. I mean, depending on what a near-term weakness did to the medium-term outlook for the economy. And then finally, I'd throw out their yield curve control, which 
I would say in Canada may not be as effective, particularly in the parts of the curve that you might want to use it as it would be somewhere like Japan or the US. What do you think about that? Here's what I worry about. I worry about when you get so close to the lower bound, and we're already there, but when you get even incrementally closer and you recognize that one of the biggest challenges for the banking system in any region that's close to the lower bound is net interest margin compression. The question is how much of this rate cut would be passed on to households if it wasn't mandated to be so? So I worry that you know even though you do have a bit of spare room left, Maybe this sounds like more of a job for fiscal policy, but if we're containing it to the bank and thinking about order of operations, I actually think what they try to do is the opposite. I think they would try and do something like yield curve control first. I think they would try and really start to hammer down that five-year rate in Canada. And to be very clear, you know, you look at the net supply profile right now, and we've talked about this before, they're effectively doing this yield curve control light already, where they've taken all supply out of the five-year sector and the wings are a little bit higher. So maybe they make that a bit more official uh, and they mandate it. But I, I was a bit surprised that they're talking about the effect of lower bound as if it is some type of theoretical construct like our star. I mean, why are they talking like that? Why aren't they just saying that we can review the policy rate and we think that money markets and the financial system can operate above zero? Why are they talking about it in the context of like a noun almost? My guess is that they didn't really do a lot of research in between the 2008-2009 financial crisis or, or even after that to investigate how low they could take rates. But now that they are at the effective lower bound or what they're currently calling the effective lower bound of 25 basis points, they're realizing that if they could squeeze a little bit more juice out of the overnight rate, they would like to. And they're probably conducting that research right now. And that's why I think they're sort of putting it out there. If I had to guess, with Governor Macklem first alluding to it and now Beaudry mentioning lowering rates further in the official text of a speech, they're probably leaning towards it being a possibility that they can lower rates. That would be my guess. Let's switch gears to a little bit more of a bright scenario where the economy outperforms the base case scenario. I'm actually going to pause for one second because I want to ask you a question. And I, I don't know how comfortable you're going to feel answering this, but let me try and put it diplomatically. What we saw the last time that Governor Macklem was at the helm or number two at the Bank of Canada was during the financial crisis. One of the unintended consequences of the governing council's decisions at that time was to materially strengthen the Canadian dollar. Uh, at one point, it was trading a par, then it went through the U.S. And we saw that that did have a pretty large secular impact on the manufacturing sector in Canada. Does the memory of that premature hike in rates matter right now, meaning that is there an overt sensitivity to Canadian dollar strength? Do you think he wants to rectify any maybe potential prior mistakes? Do you think that's why at $127 CAD we're talking about cutting interest rates? I don't know about the answer exactly. I would say, though, that you know we're a long way off from par. So you're right that this is sort of a different environment. But what we've realized since the financial crisis is that the Canadian dollar needs to be even weaker than 127 to generate traction in non-energy exports. And maybe I'll throw it back to you. Is that maybe the sense in markets, however, that the bank you know, might 
prematurely change policy in a way that would strengthen the Canadian dollar. And Mark is just trying to get ahead of that because of the history here. So one of the things that we talked about and, you know, some other members of the fixed strategy team, we put out uh, in the FX Weekly last week, this article that talks about the size of the balance sheet when central banks are conducting quantitative easing and how that feeds into the currency. And one of the things that we found was that when you take a look at all of the QE programs that were introduced in 2020, and you divide them up between the newcomers, which is the Bank of Canada, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the RBNZ, the Risk Bank, and you look at the currency performance of them, that cohort versus kind of the old guards, which is the G4, i.e. the Fed, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, the ECB, you've seen this broad-based currency outperformance coming from these newcomers. And the question is, well, we know that these new QE programs tend to have a very large impact or a larger impact on the bond market. Why aren't we seeing it in the currency market? And at the end of the day, when you look at total balance sheet expansion, you sum it up across all the central banks kind of within the G10, you've added nearly $9 trillion of additional QE this year, but some 80% of that is still coming from the G4. So size does matter, even though you have these new entrants coming into the market, which means that, you know, I wonder that even slightly reducing some of these QE programs, does it actually matter for the currency? And I don't necessarily think it does. I don't think we're getting that normal response where you increase or decrease the balance sheet and you get an associated impact on the currency because everyone's doing it at the same time. But what are you hearing about in terms of why markets are looking for the bank to reach a higher terminal rate or a higher rate earlier than the Fed. Part of it's structural, right? I mean, we've talked about this before, but it's just one of the quirks of how the Canadian fixed income market works, where there tends to be these structurally high points on the yield curve. They tend to be in the very short day part. And it, I've been calling it the macro mirage because honestly, I speak to a lot of investors. And there's very few that I actually hear that narrative from where they do think the bank's going to go first, go deeper and higher. And there's really no associated kind of narrative that the Canadian economy is just doing really, really well. So I think part of it is structural. The other part, I think, is when you look at some of the restrictions that average inflation targeting puts on, for example, the Fed versus a central bank like the Bank of Canada, it is true that this Bank of Canada has more degrees of freedom to respond to policy adjustments than the Fed does, given that now they're not just looking at inflation and growth and thinking when it gets to 2%, it's how far above 2% or for how long does it have to be? I think that by itself is worth some forward movement from the bank. But is it worth nearly 75 basis points of additional hikes over the next four years? I would say it's not. Good point. Maybe the bank and maybe when we take a look at the order of operations, what they need to do, even if they don't change their mandate, is increase the guidance around what they're going to do as the economy closes its output gap, slack is absorbed, and inflation reaches uh, sustainably 2%. Are they going to allow it to overshoot to make up? And maybe they have some flexibility there. They haven't made a concrete promise to do so, but that could help maybe. Let's turn to the upside risks to the economy. And I'll throw a few of the options out there and you can tell me what. But just before you do that, I think it's important that we kind of put this in context because last week your group put out a pretty meaningful report talking about uh, the upside risk to 2022 growth. Can you just briefly give us some numbers to work with before you introduce this upside base case? Yeah. So we're looking for growth to accelerate as early as the second quarter, as people start to get vaccinated, as the economy is able to reopen, really pick up speed 
around the middle of next year. But that growth really shows up in the annual rate of GDP in 2022. So we have um, an acceleration all the way to 5.1% in 2022. That's probably easily the highest among the consensus. The other key, however, is that we see less scarring from the pandemic than we believe others are forecasting, particularly the Bank of Canada, which lowered their potential growth outlook. What do you mean by scarring? Do you talking about like the permanent effects of like a recession? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. So the permanent effects on both the employment market and uh, in terms of capital accumulation. Essentially, during the financial crisis, we saw factories close, people shut them down, and they were never turned back on. This time around, there are businesses that have closed, but essentially, a lot of the capital is still there. And it's just waiting for the demand to pick up again. As people start going to restaurants, again, you're going to see a lot of increase in, I would say, supply of restaurant services. So this time around, it's sort of the industry mix, which gives us a little bit more of an optimistic outlook for how the economy is able to bounce back in terms of its potential output or supply. So it's not that we have the bank actually needing to hike earlier. It's that we see both growth and potential output as being you know, more robust in terms of the recovery than the Bank of Canada does. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when I think about kind of the accounting identity of the output gap, when we have faster potential, doesn't that mean that we have a wider output gap if growth isn't exceeding that? So is this a function of, you know, we have a more productivity entering the economy, potential is higher, labor income is higher. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Right, exactly. So, of course, over the next couple of years, actual GDP growth is easily going to outpace whatever potential is, but we have potential a little bit higher. So there's a little bit more room for the economy to run before reaching its potential where it would start to generate above 2% inflation. So we're more optimistic on the GDP front. We are more optimistic on the potential GDP front. It adds up to us still believing that the Bank of Canada hikes rates in 2023. And when do we have the output gap closing? So we have it closing around the turn of the end of 2022, uh, early 2023. Okay. So in that view of the upside case. I would argue that that's not the upside case. That is sort of the base case. Yeah, that's the base case. Because think about it this way. If the bank comes around and sees the world through our eyes, they'll see that both GDP and potential are higher, no need to change the timing of their commitment to keep rates low. The upside scenario is that growth turns out to be better in the next couple of quarters. And they need to do something about that because now you're building up more momentum, even ahead of when you get the really big bumps in GDP from mass vaccination. And that's what I would call the upside scenario. Okay, so when I think about that upside scenario, it's interesting that you mention that because there is a recent RBA speech, and I know I keep mentioning Australia, but there are a lot of parallels. And, you know, the recent RBA speech, they basically said, listen, we would be willing to cut interest rates again once we know the economic recovery is well underway. And you kind of take a step back and say, well, what did you just say? And it's really just a sentence for them saying, we're going to really turbocharge this economy. We're moving you from a V6 to a V12, and we're going to make sure this gets done. But that could also be a function of just trying to support inflation, which in Canada, you know, you tell me this all the time, the easiest thing to forecast is CPI. We already have inflation in Canada. Core is already relatively sticky. So when I think about that 
kind of size of the world or that scenario of the world, the first thing I think about is bond yields, right? I'm a bond guy, so obviously I think about yields rising. And we know there are some parts in the yield curve, they just do not want to have yields rise unchecked. And that's when I think when you listen to what Beaudry said last week, he did mention something along these lines that they could reduce the amount of stimulus in the system uh, if there is a upside scenario. So I almost think that they would move straight to a taper and then yield curve control uh, at the same time in that upward scenario. Okay. And one other thing I'll add on about central banks in the current environment, they may not want to add a lot of stimulus right now because the economy is, is operating with far less supply. We don't really want to encourage people to go out and start interacting again. So that could be another reason that other central banks are saying, we want to get more clarity. We'll wait a little while until it's safe for people to go out. And then we'll really, exactly what you said, turbocharge the economy. I think in the upside risk, you maybe taper outright. You could also potentially change the forward guidance, right? Like that is a conditional commitment. There are conditions. If those conditions change, you change that guidance. So I would Keep an eye out for that in terms of thinking about upside risks. Um, Any disagreement there? No, I think you're right. And listen, I think that we should kind of think about winding this down. It's uh, the last podcast of 2020. Can you briefly just talk to us about over the next couple of weeks? This week we have CPI, we have retail sales. Anything that you're looking for that is not status quo? Look, these things are kind of lagged. And and what we really want to know at this point is how bad December is going to be. And you sort of have to use those high frequency numbers, which are somewhat unreliable. So I would argue that the data is going to be very secondary, but I'll flip it back over to you. Anything in markets we should be watching during this period, during the holiday period? Obviously, I think the big news this week is going to be the FOMC meeting. Uh, There is a lot of central bank meetings this week, but in particular, we're looking out for the Fed because uh, obviously the big narrative is do they or don't they? Are we going to get a WAM extension in their purchases? Are we not? Our base case continues to be we think that you ultimately do, but it's unlikely that it happens this week. All right. Virtual high five. Good job this year. Wait, wait, wait. I wrote you a poem. Really? I did. It's it's our final episode and I wrote you a poem. Would you like to hear it? (laughs) Okay. Seriously, this this is actually a surprise. Okay. Yeah? No, you do. I'm going to start. But go ahead. There are cruise ships and Viking ships and sail ships, but the best ships are friendships. Royce, thank you for being such a great co-host this year. Isn't that good? <laughs> thank you. Very original. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Listen, to all our viewers and all our listeners, uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's been an amazing experience this year, getting all the feedback. We really look forward to being back in 2021. Someday, Royce and I will actually be together in the studio. Uh, until that time, we hope you have a very healthy, safe, and joyous holiday season. And remember, there are no bonds harmed in the making of this podcast. CIBC World Markets, Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. This communication, including any attachments, is confidential and has been prepared by the Rates Strategy Desk within the Global Markets Group at CIBC Capital Markets. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which different legal entities provide different services under this umbrella brand. Products and or services offered through CIBC Capital Markets include products and or services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and various of its subsidiaries. Services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce include corporate lending services, foreign exchange, money market instruments, structured notes, interest rate products, and OTC derivatives. CIBC's foreign exchange disclosure statement relating to guidelines contained in the FX Global Code can be found at www.cibccm.com slash FX Disclosure. Other products and services such as exchange-traded equity and equity options, fixed income securities, are offered through directly or indirectly held subsidiaries of CIBC as indicated below. The contents of this communication are based on macro and yield 
curve analysis, market events, and general institutional desk discussion. The authors of this communication is not a research analyst, and this communication is not the product of any CIBC World Markets Inc. research department, nor should it be construed as a research report. The authors of this communication is not a person or company with actual, implied, or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned in the communication. The commentary and any attachments, other than any attached CIBC World Markets Inc. branded research reports and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individual authors, except where the author expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets Inc. The authors may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to the securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. The contents of this message are tailored for particular client needs, and accordingly, this message is intended for the specific recipient only. Any dissemination, redistribution, or other use of this message or the market commentary contained herein by any recipient is unauthorized. If you are not the intended recipient, please reply to this email and delete this communication and any copies without forwarding them. Distribution in Hong Kong this communication has been approved and is issued in Hong Kong by Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Hong Kong Branch, a registered institution under the Securities and Futures Ordinance, the SFO, to professional investors, as defined in clauses A to H of the definition thereof set out in Schedule 1 of the SFO. Any recipient in Hong Kong who has any questions or requires further information on any matters arising from or relating to this communication should contact Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Hong Kong Branch at Suite 3602, Cheung Kong Center, 2 Queens Road Central, Hong Kong. Telephone number 852-2841. 6111. Distribution in Singapore. This communication is intended solely for distribution to accredited investors, expert investors, and institutional investors, each an eligible recipients. Eligible recipients should contact Danny Tan at Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Singapore branch at 16 Collier Quay, number 04-02 Singapore 049318. Telephone number 6564233806 in respect of any matter arising from or in connection with this report. Distribution in Japan. This communication is distributed in Japan by CIBC World Markets Japan Inc. Distribution in Australia. Communications concerning derivatives and foreign exchange contracts are distributed in Australia to professional investors within the meaning of the Corporations Act 2001 by CIBC World Markets Inc. Communications concerning securities are distributed in Australia by CIBC Australia Limited. License number 240603, ACN 0006325626 to CIBC Capital Markets Clients. CIBC World Markets Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. In the United States, CIBC World Markets Corp. is a member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority and the Securities Investor Protection Fund. CIBC World Markets Place is authorized by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and Prudential Regulation Authority. CIBC World Markets Securities Ireland Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Sydney Branch, ABN 33608-235-847 is an authorized foreign bank branch regulated by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, APRA. CIBC Australia Limited, AFSL number 240603, is regulated by the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC. CIBC World Markets Japan Inc. is a member of the Japanese Securities Dealer Association. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Hong Kong Branch is a registered institution under the Securities and Futures Ordinance, CAP 571. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Singapore Branch is an offshore bank licensed and regulated by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Unauthorized use, distribution, duplication, or disclosure without the prior written permission of CIBC World Markets Inc. is prohibited and may result in prosecution. 